Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. From the offices of Create and Cultivate, I'm Jacqueline Johnson, and this is Work Party, a podcast for women who are redefining the meaning of work on their own terms. This season, we're bringing in leading female powerhouses to take a deep dive into the topics that matter most to you. Technology, money, marketing, entrepreneurship, you name it, we're covering it all. Tune in every Wednesday for career, real talk, and BS-free advice from the best in the biz. Ready to create and cultivate the career of your dreams? Well, welcome to Work Party, the podcast. Launching a business is so much more than just having a great idea. Passion is important, of course, but if you want to scale your business for growth and be profitable, you need to get the fundamentals in place. Because even if your product is selling well, you'll soon have another problem, delivering that product to all your new customers and on time. Are your business systems, infrastructure, and team able to accommodate that growth? If you're not, then orders will start falling through the cracks, which will very quickly lead to unhappy customers who will not be back for more. So how do you scale your passion into a thriving business? To find out, we tap someone who has done just that with wild success. Pyle Kadakia, founder and executive chairman of Billion Dollar Business Class Pass. As we find out in this chat, scaling requires planning, funding, system staff, processes, technology, partners, oh, and believing in yourself. And yes, there will be missteps along the way, but as long as you set the foundation to enable and support that growth, you will be successful. So let's get right into it. So welcome to Work Party. We're so excited to have you. Obviously, you know, I've known you now for many years and have seen the skyrocketing success of a lot of your ventures. Um, and we're so excited to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much, Jacqueline. Always great catching up with you. Yay. So ClassPass was valued at a billion dollars earlier this year. So congratulations on that. Um, but this success didn't happen overnight. Uh, you worked a nine to five while building your side hustle for five months before making it your full-time job. Um, and it's definitely been a journey with ups and downs, I'm sure. What kept you motivated to keep going on the most challenging days to pursue your passion? And what advice would you give to people who think this is an easy overnight success story? <laughs> Such a great question. And honestly, the most important one, right? Uh, and it comes down for me to having such a clear mission that I was on from day one. It was a problem I wanted to solve in the world. And there was nothing that was going to stop me until I solved it. And when that is at the backbone of everything that you do, I think it helps guide you through you know, any of the challenges, any of the constraints, any of you know the things that happen in the world, even like COVID. 
um, that really have to push you through and help you figure out what you're going to do to move forward. So at the end of it, like to me, it came down to mission. And, you know, I think when you feel like you are doing something that you really care about, when challenges arise, while, you know, they are really hard and um, there are days and nights where, you know, everything has just fallen apart and you feel like you need to get back up. And I think when you remember your why, you really go back to why you were on this journey and it helps push you forward. Absolutely. And especially, you know, you've had class pass now for, for how long? I started the company in 2011. The idea actually came to me in 2010. So yes, here we are a decade later. And I think that goes to show that it's a marathon, not a sprint. And you have to stick with it. You know, I feel like uh, people always, I remember it was around like 2015 when people would come up to me and be like, oh my God, I just heard about it. And that's great. And, you know, you forget, I'm like, I've been doing this for five years, (laughs) you know? And I think that's just a part of the journey is that there are times when it works and there's times where um, you don't know, but if you really care about what you're doing, you stick with it. Absolutely. And so let's start at the beginning. So you have this light bulb moment, you have the idea. What were some of the immediate things you did to set up the business? Like, did you write a business plan? Like, how did you kind of go from idea to business? Yeah. So I started, yes, with like a pitch deck. I think like that was sort of the thing that, you know, I was told to do in the beginning. It's like, let's write this, you know, pitch deck and get all my thoughts together. And while in hindsight now, while I I truly believe like a lot of these financial models that you build early on are honestly like complete BS because at the end of the day, I don't know anyone's company who's ever followed their initial business plan. Uh, That being said, it's a good way to really analyze and, and get your thoughts together and strategy into one place, right? So going through, you know, what product do you want to build? How big is your market? Who's going to build it? What's your product going to look like? Those are sort of the obvious questions that someone's going to ask you. And doing the financial side of it as well kind of starts make you, making you realize like where do you have, you know, a potential business model that's going to work here? Where is the profit coming from? What are your biggest costs? So you can start thinking about how you're going to be able to navigate it. You're probably not ever going to hit those numbers right away. And that's okay. But it's really important to just kind of start getting a sense of what you're going to build. So I started building that. The second thing I did is I started looking at comps. So I knew from day one, I wanted to build sort of this business that at that point was similar to like OpenTable, right? And OpenTable had just been valued at a billion dollars. So I was doing all this analysis on other businesses like OpenTable, you know, sort of anything that was in the offline to online space that was like going on. So there was things like Seamless Web, there was ZocDoc. And so I was trying to meet like any of the CEOs from there. I was, you know, trying to talk to them. I wanted to understand how they grew their business. So that was a big part of it. And then the third thing was building a team, right? I think you can't do any of this alone. And so uh, finding people who, you know, I think were a great balance to my strengths and weaknesses was something I started looking for right away because I did, I wanted to do this with somebody. I always feel like it's more fun doing it together. Absolutely. And so when it came to bringing on team members, what were you prioritizing um, at the beginning stages? Honestly, just people who I knew cared a lot about the mission and who I knew could get stuff done. That at the end of the day is the most important thing. I kind of call, I like to say, I call them generalists in the sense of, they were kind of good at anything, could figure anything out in a matter of a day if they needed to. Um, I wouldn't say they were like just experts in one area. Uh, that being said, of course, like there were areas like tech or design where I did need somebody. And those those things either 
um, you know, I found someone and I had to like use my network to find, or, you know, I hired someone who I felt like, you know, got it. And I even like asked some of them, like one of my, my designers who, uh, from early on was somebody I was dancing with. And she was like, I'm a designer. I'm like, Hey, can I pay you like for a few hours a week to kind of just get this going? Because I didn't know what I wanted to build yet, but I needed Mm -hmm. someone to work with. I love that. I love the idea of generalists. I think that's so important these days um, because really it's, there are a few jobs like the ones you said, tech and development and things like that, that are very straight and narrow and that's what they are. But there is such a need for people who just, as you said, get shit done. Exactly. Um, so I, I think that's, that's a really great tip. So you mentioned you did the financial strategy. You figured out, you know, essentially what the business would be. Did you develop personas at ClassPass and how did you use them to test your ideas before you launched? So, you know, it's funny, I I worked at Bain and, um, you know, we would do a lot of like marketing for big companies and figuring out like, oh, like who should we target and what demographic and is it a woman and all that stuff. And honestly, like, I think with the startup, when you're that small, like none of that matters. Like what matters is building a product. There is no amount of marketing that can sell a product that doesn't work. So I think for me early on, it was product, product, product. It was build a product that works. And I will like kind of, if people are willing to talk about it, they'll do the marketing for you in the beginning. Because once again, like no amount of Facebook ads or sort of like brand strategy can sell a product that doesn't work, right? And so I always like use that as my fundamental philosophy before like sort of like go into any marketing. I think what we started realizing though, as we were building class passes is like the target customer was, was me, was someone who wanted to go to class all the time, you know? And, and I think like that is really important to know. And I think so many, especially incredible founders today, like you're solving a problem that you have. I think this is why there's so many incredible, unique products out there today, because there are different problems that every unique community is, is trying to solve for themselves. And I think as a founder, you kind of really have to be your customer. And I think that is the most important thing when you start up. Obviously, once you grow and you're bigger, you can start doing personas and start like targeting and start sort of like tweaking your ads and your like photo shoots to kind of make it work. But I don't think you do that until you're much bigger. Your business is more than the goods you sell or the services you provide. It's the heart of the economy, which is why I'm teaming up with MasterCard to support entrepreneurs by sharing my tips and advice to help their local business like how to build an empathetic company culture that drives growth. Plain and simple, empathy is essential for effective workplace leadership. When you're able to understand your employees' perspectives and put yourself in their shoes, you're able to make decisions with their well-being in mind. Your employees want to feel heard, valued, and cared about. When those needs are met, employees are more likely to show loyalty and cooperation, which will ultimately lead to optimal creativity and potentially overall company growth. Showing your appreciation can also encourage employees to be more engaged and inspire productivity. Lastly, like many components of company culture, empathy has a trickle-down effect. So when employees are witnessing empathy from senior leadership, they're likely to practice it themselves, resulting in increased teamwork and collaboration amongst individuals. You cannot go wrong by weaving empathy into the DNA of your role as a leader in your company as a whole. It's the gift that keeps on giving, and it's a great way to set your business up for prosperity. For more tools and resources, go to mastercard.us slash mainstreetrecovery. That's mastercard.us slash mainstreetrecovery. Together, we can start something priceless. 
Hey girl, hey, welcome to Taste of Taylor, my weekly podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Strecker. You might know me from Sirius XM Radio. I mean, I was there for like 12 years after all. But then Howard Stern allegedly got jealous of me, so I had to leave. I was actually able to pull myself up by the bootstraps and start my own podcast, Taste of Taylor, which is now officially with Dear Media. I'm so excited to say that. Ha! So I promise you in this podcast, you're going to either learn about something, you're going to be inspired by someone that's like always coming from a perspective of like humor, then this is the place for you. I hope you enjoy this little snack. Now let's cut to, you have over 500 employees in 18 countries and have raised over 200 million in venture funding, you know, so now you are that big company, right? So how has it changed over time? And when you were, you know, in 2011, figuring out this company, did you have dreams of being a multi-billion dollar company with a global growth strategy and all those different things? Like how big were your goals? Yeah. Well, so I'll, I'll address the first thing about, you know, just being global. And I mean, I remember, uh, just, I think it was last year in the middle of Amsterdam, we had this like huge billboard up. Right. And it was like, it's, it's like not even in English, right? Like, and I say that in the sense of, you know, you have to cater your strategy to wherever you are. And especially as a global company, like we've had to figure out local marketing, we've had to figure out local press, right? I think we've even had to tweak our product to make sure that, you know, there are places like in Asia where it wasn't just about boutique fitness, it was about people also wanting wellness, right? And so I I say that in the sense of you have to understand like where your product is and who your customer is to evolve it and change your marketing to make sure it works. And I think like we did that as we got older and we have different like marketing strategies and different local teams that help us help tell us how to best market the product in different geographies as that is so important we've also you know we wanted to make sure like classpass was something that you know men could do at some point too and so i remember like we also built a strategy around like how do we make sure men know that there is like boxing on here and martial arts and like this idea of going to the gym and so i think it's important at some point like you said once you're bigger and you can handle it and you know, you're not just trying to get like the product out the door that you start thinking about like, Hey, how do I grow this pocket? You know, is my message too focused on one type of customer? How do I start making sure it grow? Right. You don't want, especially when you're global, you don't want someone to think like, Oh, that's not something I would use here. I can only use it in, in like one country and not the other. And I think, you know, we have to do a big push to say you can use this anywhere and it works in different um, communities. To your second question on you know, did I think I would build a company this big? I mean, you know, I think when you start out, you just want to make an impact. And I really like, I remember cheering and being so happy when the first reservation came into ClassPass. Like I actually remember that email and, you know, I just remember being so happy that someone booked a class, right? And I know like here we are a hundred million reservations later. And I am that excited about the fact that we really like changed people's lives. And I think that was what I always strived for. Like, yeah, it's great to get to a billion dollar valuation, but that's a number, right? And I think like, obviously it's great to have these dreams that are are big. And I think every single person in the world should, uh, but I think it has to come down to what your why is. And some people have a why that doesn't need to be that big. And I say that in the sense of, you know, it shouldn't be about comparing it. And I think that's, you know, people kind of get stuck in that, I think a lot today. So I think it's really important to just, I just am happy because I feel like I was on a mission that I'm still on, but that I'm making progress on it. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, you know, you're 10 years in now, 
everyone wants to figure out how to scale. You've done it successfully, but what were some of the challenges that came along with scaling? Um, you know, especially in the early growth phases, you know, because it, it, although it's been 10 years, like the scaling kind of happened, it seems like very quickly. Um, so what recommendation would you give to founders that are in that sort of beginning of the rapid fire scaling and growth? Yeah. So I think, um, you have to hire quickly, fire quickly. I think that's just the way it goes because you, you know, I remember having to hire like 60 salespeople overnight one time because we decided to launch literally like 10 more cities in, uh, this was in 2014, um, because we were facing a ton of competition all across the U S and we needed to really step on the gas and get into many more cities. So we hired a ton of salespeople and we kind of just had to, it was like, you know, it was, it was like, go, we would just fly people out to cities, let them sell. And like, we've kind of figured out who was good and who was not just based on if they could close studios. Right. Um, and we were kind of just doing it while we were in flight. And so we were obviously on like a very rapid growth trajectory. Obviously I wish I, you know, if I had more time to plan it all, you know, I do believe obviously in the higher slowly, like, you know, uh, or, you know, because I just think it's, important to know who you're kind of bringing into your company, but we just didn't have the time to do that. I would say that when you're growing, you know, look, I also think that there's this thing around champagne problems that I call anything a champagne problem that is something you kind of worry about when something works. So like, I remember in the beginning when we were first building the product, we're like, should we build like all these servers out and all this technology out? So it doesn't break when we have like a million people on the, on the website, but it's like, first let's get to a thousand people on the website. <laughs> then let's get to 10,000 people on the website. And so I do remember there was like a day, you know, we used to have this 12 noon booking window on ClassFast. And, um, I remember I was like going into a VC meeting and I get all these tweets. Right. And everyone's like, ClassFast, like your site's down. And I like look and I'm like, We're, we've like, com- it's completely crashed because we like added this popular studio and I always remember like looking back to that. And as much as I was like, oh my God, fix this because I'm about to go into this really important meeting. I also remember being like, wow, like I can't believe we hit that. So I, I say that in the sense of perspective of don't overbuild because you can do it as you're growing if you have the right team in place. And of course the site always crashes when you're going into an important meeting or have a big press piece coming out. It is always, it, it's like there. that's just part of the, part of the process, I guess. Exactly. Um, But they're champagne problems. (laughs) Exactly. And I I love that. So, you know, what do you think um, is the common reason startups don't survive? Um, And obviously, you know, right now, women, a lot of female owned businesses are closing down because of COVID that are disproportionately affected by COVID-19 because the funding isn't there. And right now, cash flow is everything. So what are some of the common reasons you think startups don't survive? And what advice can you share to prevent that from happening? The biggest thing is make decisions quickly. I think people forget that you're not really up against money, you're up against time, right? So if I have like, you know, 10 weeks of payroll left, like you make a decision as many times as you can in those 10 weeks to make it work, right? You don't wait for the money to run out. And I think that's like the most important thing that you can do. I realize obviously today we're in a little bit of a different situation with COVID because it's, you know, it's just some, some businesses just can't work right now. So I think you can return back to your mission and figure out, you know, how do I, you know, cut costs in the easiest way possible in the way that feels authentic and keep, you know, a connection to my customers in the most, um, you know, authentic way that you can outside of that. You know, I think the most important thing is to just keep going and make hard decisions, right? I think Mm -hmm. no company exists without making those hard decisions. If you 
sort of, if something is keeping you up at night that you're like, I know that should go like, yeah, you know, you have to make that decision quickly, you know? And I think in the history of class pass, like we've made a lot of hard decisions along the way and we're here because of it. And I think Mm -hmm. I learned how to do that along the way. I think the first decision was hard. The second was, you know, got a little easier. And then, you know, you just start becoming very attuned to, okay, like I have to keep moving because if you don't keep moving, the wave is just going to take you. And I think that's what's so important is just find a way to fight through it and go quickly because you don't want time to run out. Mm-hmm. And so now you have this massive team. Um, and again, 10 years later, you know, building a culture that supports your team is also so important. And it can be incredibly challenging when you're doing that at rapid pace. So how did you develop a supportive, inclusive, and fun company culture along the way as you were growing and scaling? I think the most important thing is leading from an authentic place and your team, I think, follows your behavior. So, you know, I wanted to build a culture where people obviously felt like they could go to class and like that. And this is like an important principle, right? At ClassPass for me, because I was somebody who hated the fact that, you know, and we would obviously, we, we everyone's wearing leggings and stuff when we were going to our offices. Um, and that was like what I wanted to do. I never wanted to wear anything but leggings. And if I wanted to go take like a Pilates class at noon, I wanted to go and do that. And I would do that. And I think my team saw me doing that. And they were like, oh my God, I can do that too. And I wanted them to. And I totally believe that like taking a little break in your day, getting a little movement, working out, meditation, whatever it is, is going to make you that much more productive in the afternoon versus sitting at your desk for like eight, nine hours straight. I just never believed how anyone could do that. Um, so I think, you know, part of a lot of it is like leading by example. And I think especially when, you know, you're, you're unique, like I, especially, you know, I started my company 10 years ago, there wasn't as many, um, like female entrepreneurs at the time. Like I knew I had to show my team, like who they could be. Right. I wanted to, and I remember like, I would have, um, my husband, you know, he was obviously my boyfriend at the time. Like we were uh, by coastal, I would let him come into the office and work. Like I wanted people to make sure that I, like that I was supportive of the fact that like, they could be whoever they wanted. And that's who I was. And I would invite them to my dance performances and my dance shows because I wanted them to know that I was living my life fully and I wanted them to. That was our vision statement. That wasn't just something that we put on the walls, but it was something that we all truly have to live. Um, So part of being an entrepreneur also is falling in love with the numbers, Uh, but finance doesn't come naturally to everyone. So how did you learn? I mean, now that you're running, you've been running this incredibly successful, you know, billion dollar business. How did you learn the financial side of business? Was this something that came naturally to you? And what advice do you have for founders who are struggling with P&Ls and, um, you know, cash flow or balance sheets and all that? I mean, I would definitely try and take like a quick course on it if you can. I mean, I did study uh, business in college and, you know, I had a bit of background on it. So I did understand like the basics of a PL and all of that. So I do think like whether you have a friend or someone who can teach you, I think it's important to know it because at the end of the day, it is at the end of like how investors are going to look at your business. So even if you look at your business a different way, that is how most people expect you to explain it to them. And when you're going to have to explain like, oh, here's how you're going to make money, right? In the meeting, it's just important to understand like what numbers that they're going to be looking at. And you also don't understand sort of what I like what I consider sort of like leading metrics and reactive measures of your business, right? Like, so usually if you look at your P&L, it's like, it's sort of after the fact of something happening. It's important to make sure you understand like what metrics are, are sort of good indicators of what's going to happen. So like, I always keep an eye on the reservation number at Classrooms because, because I know if that's going down, like everything's going to go down, right? Engagement's going to go down. If that's going up, that means like more people are signing up. The studios are happier. People are making more money. 
And so I think it's really important to understand the inner workings of what metrics to track. I think a lot of times, and you know, I think I did this early on too, you end up trying to focus on like thousands of numbers and that's when it gets really confusing, I think for you and for other people. And you kind of lose focus, right? Because you're trying to like get revenue up. You're trying to like cut costs. You're trying to get your PL to work. You know, I think so much of it is actually knowing which numbers are the most important to focus on at which time and try and, you know, really put strategies or priorities in place in your business to, um, you know, focus on one or the other. But once again, like I really do think it comes down to trying to learn and understand how your business works. I, you know, I do meet a lot of entrepreneurs who always are like, oh, like, can I just hire someone to do it for me? And like, this is one area, I mean, with anything, with tech, with anything, like, of course, and we were talking about generalists earlier, as like the founder and, you know, CEO, I think it's important that you really truly do understand it to a certain extent. I mean, you know, tech is a little bit harder, but I think when it comes to your P&L, like, I think, you have to, honestly. I just think it's a must because it's it's so important to the inner workings of how your company is uh, presented to the most important people who are going to give you the money. And you know, at the end of the day, you are the one that are, is making the, the creative, whether it's the creative decisions or the financial decisions. You have to understand, you know, where the cash flow stands, where the money's coming from, and, exactly. and what's working. You know, again, like you said, maybe it's even from like a high level, but. So you are now, you know, one of the most successful female entrepreneurs. You're one of the few female entrepreneurs, sadly, but that has raised um, the amount of money that you have. But just to to kind of go over the Instagram highlight reel, it's really hard being an entrepreneur and obviously building a billion dollar business like yours. So what are some of the the struggles, some of the personal sacrifices that you've made to to get to this level? Yeah, I mean, I you know I always think about this in the sense of. I think my twenties, especially, I'm in, I'm in my late thirties now. Um, I, I mean, I missed so many of my friends, like weddings, like parties, events. I, and I look back and of course, like I was sad about it, but I just remember being so energized by what I was building that it didn't matter to me. I, I always say this, but I think when you have something so important to say yes to, it becomes very easy to say no to the things that, you know, are just less important in your life. And I have had to make sacrifices. I mean, in, to my parents, and I got married when I was uh, 33, but, you know, I'm Indian. So that's like very late in the game um, comparatively. And, you know, and I had a baby when I was 37. I mean, I don't think that's late at all. It was, it was my timeline, you know, but I think, you know, it was harder for my parents because they were like, wait, why are you like not doing this in your 20s like everyone else? Or, you know, and I think that sort of conversation in my head was harder than anything. It wasn't that I, um, like I said, I really felt like I was doing exactly what I wanted to and, um, how I wanted to, it was just harder, I think, to have to keep explaining it to other people. I think I remember getting to this point in my life where, you know, all my family, like they just stopped asking me, right? Like, Hey, like, when are you getting married? When are you going to have a baby? Cause I was just like, guys, like I'm doing this on my own timeline. Like, have you not gotten the hint from everything else I've done in my life? And you know what? It's worked out, you know? And I think, I think part of this, and I, you know, I think it's important that you train the people around you to really let you live the way you want to, because like I said, I don't regret any of it, but I think it was hard to kind of combat all the voices that kept telling me like, Hey, shouldn't you be doing this? Shouldn't you be doing this instead of this? But I really loved it. Like I never, even when I was like working like at, uh, at Bain, like I would wake up on Saturday mornings at like you know, 7, 8 a.m. to go to dance rehearsal for four or five hours, or most of my friends were like going to brunch and hanging out. I didn't care to make that trade-off. But 
like, and I say this in the sense of it's because that's what I prioritized and what made me happy. And so I think for anyone, I would say that is know what makes you happy and don't let anyone make you feel bad for doing it. I think guilt is really the thing that makes this journey sort of sometimes feel like, you know, Hey, like I shouldn't be doing this, you know, and it makes it feel um, almost like a struggle, but it shouldn't don't feel guilty about doing something that you love. I love that. And as someone who worries about having kids and running a business and all that, I'm very glad that you shared you were 37 when you had your first kid. So um, I am right on track alongside, <laughs> alongside yeah. you. You're in your own timeline. You know, I think uh, that is the, the most important thing is, you know, I think uh, it's hard and look like there are obviously like, I always tell people this with like, especially with like mother, like, you know, get your data, like do your research, make sure your body's okay. Cause that's the most important thing. Um, but you know, I think like it's don't feel guilty and don't feel bad. Just when you want something, you go out and get it. I love it. And, you know, obviously a lot of the work party listeners are women who are starting companies or looking to raise money. Um, and since you have obviously raised close, close to $285 million, I'd love to ask in your experience, what are three things every founder should include in their pitch deck? Ooh, wow. Um, okay. I would say you should always have, once again, your mission vision. Cause I think that is really truly what makes you unique for, and your, gives you your purpose. I think you have to explain why you're the person who should be building this. Like there needs to be a connection, right? Like you're not just some hired person building this. And then I think you have to paint the picture of the market that you're going after because it's important, especially, like I said, for the people in the room to understand how big you're thinking, right? Especially if they're going to be giving you dollars. So to paint a picture of how scalable your, uh, your vision and, and mission is and what you want to reach. So when it comes to being a leader these days, you know, what, are, especially with where we are now and having to pivot so quickly, what traits do you think founders need to succeed? I think you just need to have perseverance. You know, I think that is really the name of the game, especially right now. I think, you know, I would have said that to an entrepreneur before what we're going through right now. I think I would just, you know, sort of bold it now in the sense of you just got to keep going. You got to be persistent and persevere uh, through it. And like I said, if you really, truly care about what you're doing, you'll find happiness and motivation even in a time that we're going through right now. So 10 years. In, if you could go back to the beginning of your career journey with, you know, all the knowledge, all the experience, all the crash sites, all the things, what advice would you give yourself, uh, you know, at the very beginning? I think it comes down to just believe that you really, truly can change the world. I think like it's really hard. And I think we all go through moments where we don't always believe that, you know, I'm, I'm a four foot 11 small, you know, human being. And uh, but I always, you know, wanted to impact the world. And I think it's like, just believe in yourself, right? I think it's the doubt and the conversations in our, our mind that are the hardest to kind of work through. So I would just say like, you know, don't, don't listen to other people and, you know, live your life the way you want to. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're going to end with some rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay. My best productivity hack is? Calendaring. I plan everything into my calendar. The last time I felt fear was? Ooh, hmm. 
probably through COVID. I mean, just combination of baby plus business. I mean, you know, <laughs> and I'll just caveat that with, you know, I've, I feel like I have a really good way of dealing with fear just because I've been through points of, you know, fear before where, you, like I said, action is the best way forward, but um, there's, it's impossible to kind of go through this whole period without having some sense of fear. Agreed. Uh, favorite perk of the job? Going to class all the time. <laughs> and a female entrepreneur I admire. Ooh, so many. You, Jacqueline. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Um, this was awesome. Thank you so much for your incredible honesty and such incredible advice during this uh, uncertain time. Thanks for being on the show. Of course. Thanks for having me. Have you bought your copy of Work Party the Book? Part career manifesto, part practical business advice, Work Party the Book is everything I wish I knew during my early years as an entrepreneur. The ups, the downs, the things I learned and the women that helped me to make it happen. Just like in our podcast, Work Party the Book does not shy away from the nitty gritty details you need to know. If you hope to start your own business or become the HBIC at your current gig, we're here to help you out. Available in hardcover and audiobook on Amazon, also on iBooks at Target and your local bookstore. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Work Party, the podcast. If you felt inspired and learned something new, let us know in a review on iTunes and check us out on social at Work Party. For every episode, we have downloadable resources available on workparty.com. So you can put these tips and tools into action for your own business. Thanks again for listening. And as always, work hard, party on.